Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hi, this podcast is sponsored by Ops Analytica, the restaurant checklist inspection and reporting platform. If you are trying to get better visibility into your daily operations and hold your managers more accountable and run better operations, check us out at opsanalytica.com. That's O-P-S-A-N-A-L-I-T-I-C-A.com or just search restaurant checklist app. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Order Up, the Restaurant Ops Podcast. My name is uh, Tommy Nose. I'm going to be your host today, and we are very lucky to have a special guest with us, Mr. John Lewis. Say hello, John. Hey, guys. And uh, John and I, uh, John and I went to grad school together, and that's how we met back in 2005 to 2007 at the University of Denver. And what was interesting, and I don't know if they did this on purpose or not, but it was interesting because John and I both had a lot of restaurant experience coming into graduate school, which not a lot of people did. It's not like a lot of restaurant guys go back and get their MBAs. So it was it was cool that we were in the same group that uh, they call them cohorts and that we were together basically for the entire two years of getting our master's degrees. And uh, we took a lot of classes together, did a lot of group projects at, and we're both pretty good friends, really good friends. I don't know why I said pretty good, really good friends. And uh, anyway, so welcome, John, to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very, very welcome. And uh, we also used to say congratulations because John just got married. So congratulations to you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, so the format for the interviews, John, just so you know, is that I ask the same five questions to everybody. And that way uh, we could kind of just like everybody gets used to the format and I think they're pretty decent questions. And you just give us your answers, and then we uh, we do a whole hour afterwards, kind of like uh, after The Walking Dead, Talking Dead, where we make fun of you in a different podcast. Sure. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm looking forward to it. Nice. Um, so wonderful. So I uh, guess I should say, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do five questions, and then at the end, you can, uh, even, you can tell everybody where they can learn more about your business, and you can sort of plug, um, you know, your uh, company and all that stuff at the end as well. So people who might be looking for your services will be able to f uh, reach out to you. Cool. Okie dokie. So let's just get started on the interview here. Um, first question, question number one, explain what you do today and then take us through your career progression, sort of from your first job in the industry to where you are at now. Sure. Uh, well, today I own a company called Denver Food Group and we really specialize in the food service industry. Uh, we do everything from market research, trend analysis, to concept development, restaurant development, product development, sensory analysis. So we kind of run the whole gamut as far as kind of next level strategic type thinking for the food service industry. Uh, I started out as a dishwasher when I was uh, 13 or 14 years old, and I worked my way up through uh, the front of the house and then the back of the house. And I kind of worked in every aspect of the restaurant industry. I also worked in a few hotels. I worked in a few supermarkets. I worked in a few uh, delis. Um, so I, I basically played every single role that there is in a restaurant. Uh, from there, I went to uh, culinary school where I got a culinary degree. And then I went to um, 
Europe for about six months to study wine, and I got my sommelier certificate in Europe. Um, and then I went back to school, and I got a degree in food marketing. And then I, I did a few uh, more kind of odd jobs around the restaurant industry, and I went back to get my master's degree with Tommy at uh, the University of Denver, <laughs> where I got my MBA in finance. Uh, following my MBA, I, um, I did an internship at a place called Cooper Tea Company, where uh, I was in the brand marketing department. And it's a very, very small company. There was only one other person in the marketing department. So um, we had actually a lot more um, meaningful work as an intern than what a normal intern would have. We actually launched a new product called uh, Baza High Energy Green Tea uh, during my time there. And we participated in a lot of different research studies as far as the bottle design, how why the opening needs to be to have a perfect amount of flow, uh, what that color needs to be to really attract people to the shelf, what the logo needs to look like, what the label needs to look like, and then all the, all the type of sensory stuff. So I really learned a lot at Cooper Tea Company. Yeah, After Cooper, awesome. I went to uh, Heinz North America, where I managed bulk ketchup condiments and sauces. Uh, bulk ketchup condiments, Condiments and sauces are primarily used uh, not only in the back of the house, like in the kitchen. So if someone uh, wants to make their own custom barbecue sauce, but they don't want to start uh, by building a base and they want to use, you know, like our ketchup, for instance, uh, we would sell ketchup in bulk uh, style containers that were very uh, recipe friendly um, so that they can make their own custom sauces in the back of the house without having to do bases. Uh, the other part of that business was, uh, more attributable to um, concessions and condiment stands, so like what you'll see at Costco or like what you'll see at amusement parks and sporting venues. Um, any kind of bulk condiment dispensing is uh, what I managed as well. That, that's a party that's right the, there. <laughs> swimming in ketchup. <laughs> After that, uh, I stayed with Heinz for a few more years, except I, uh, I transitioned my role to the innovation department. And I was part of uh, the first team uh, that we created during my time there to really cater to our top 10 clients. Uh, our top 10 clients at the time were people similar to, uh, you know, Wendy's and uh, Long John Silver's and those types of folks. And our main mission really was to be truly innovative for them and help them grow their business because if they grow their business, we can grow our business. Um, and we didn't necessarily always lead with or go to them with products that we designed or products that we even could produce. Uh, we're really just a resource to tell them what they need to do to their menu to attract more customers. And if that meant we sold more sauce, great. If it just meant that they had a healthier business, you know, that was one of the goals as well. So can you dive a little deeper into that? Because that's something that I've never kind of heard about. Like, like explain like really what that was, you know what I mean? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, like what kind of food items or. Sure. Uh, well, like, so a uh, hypothetical example, uh, right now the industry is experiencing very high beef prices. Uh, so we would see that and we would see, you know, a trend towards people, uh, companies and consumers 
you know, eating more chicken. So we would go to one of our beef-centric uh, customers and we would say, hey, look, you know, we know that you're being, um, you know, hurt by some of the high beef prices. And we know that chicken is on trend not only with your competitors, but also with your consumers. So we're going to develop, you know, several different things that you can do with chicken. And then we'll dive a little bit further and we'll say, okay, well, it's not just chicken. We see that now that consumers are eating more chicken because of the high prices of beef, chicken breast meat is getting more expensive. So there's an influx of dark meat in the market. What can we create? What kind of product can we create that utilizes some of that dark meat to keep your costs down, but still meet that consumer need? So we would develop, you know, a, a ground chicken value sandwich that, you know, looks and tastes like a, a normal, um, you know, breast meat chicken, but it's using chicken thighs instead of breast meat. Um, and then we would create on-trend condiments and sauces that would pair with it or on-trend uh, type of uh, bakery and bread carriers to go with it. And then we would tell them how to market it and who that target was that that uh, sandwich would fulfill, uh, what occasion that sandwich would fulfill. Would it be a lunch occasion, a snack occasion, a late night occasion? Um, so we would really go as deep as possible to try to really figure out what that consumer need is and then develop a product against it. And you guys didn't charge for that service. It was just kind of, hey, we know you buy tens of millions of dollars of ketchup from us a year. So we just want to be a value added uh, partner to your company and get give you something of value to show you that, hey, we, we are your partner. Is that basically it? Correct. Awesome. That's really cool, dude. That's really cool. It was a lot of fun. And then after Heinz, I, um, I transitioned to the customer side and I worked for Wendy's. Um, I was in their product or project management department, if you will. I was a program manager. Uh, so I managed uh, all the kind of projecting of sales of any new LTO, any transitioning in, transitioning out item, any new national launch. I worked with the suppliers on timing on how much raw products and raw ingredients we would need. I worked with the distributors on how much each distributor, distributor would need to order of each product and where that product needed to go, when that product needed to get there. I worked with the stores to advise them on, you know, how much product they could expect to sell on a given day, so how much product they would need to order in a given week. And um, I just kind of managed the whole project lifestyle or life cycle um, as it relates to any limited time offer, any national launch, or any product disengagement. Can you talk about one of the ones you worked on? Sure. Um, Wendy's Natural Cut Fries. Uh, that nice. was a very large initiative. Um, we basically changed the entire potato. Uh, we went from a kind of a general uh, food service umatilla-type potato uh, to all Russet Burbank potatoes. Uh, so that involved a lot of pre-planning because at the time, you know, there wasn't enough russet Burbank potatoes planted in the ground to fulfill our needs. So we would work with uh, the farmers a year ahead of time just to make sure that there was enough russet Burbank potatoes planted uh, so that we could get them processed and get them to our consumers. Uh, we also worked with the French fry uh, suppliers in 
designing new uh, cutting blades so that we could get just the right thickness that we were looking for and just that right kind of natural cut um, skin on. We worked with the French fry suppliers on any type of the pre-fry oil because we wanted it to be a very natural product. We didn't want a lot of kind of nasty ingredients, but we still wanted a great flavor. So we worked with many different oil oil suppliers and the fry suppliers to see what that pre-fry would look like. Uh, we worked with uh, our salt companies to bring in the natural sea salt. Uh, we tried probably about 50 different uh, sea salts at Wendy's before we identified the one that actually tasted great and could be uh, dispensed in an appropriate manner in a, in a measured manner uh, and had the right particulate size and had the right adherence to the fry. It wouldn't just fall off in the bin. Uh, then we worked with uh, our oil supplier again to change the oil that's in the restaurants uh, to make sure that there was no nasty ingredients in there, uh, made sure it was clean, made sure that it had uh, the right properties to last a, uh, a lot of fry batches without you know, having the oil degrade in any way and without having the product degrade in any way. And then once all that development was done, uh, you know, we had to really manage the supply chain because at any given time, you know, we had 4,600 trucks anywhere in the country, no, 46,000 trucks anywhere in the country, trucks or freight trains that either carried salt, oil, potatoes, completed French fries to the supplier, completed French fries from the supplier to the distributors, completed French fries from the distributors to the restaurants, um, so at any given time during this entire process, we had 46,000 trucks on the road carrying something to do with our French fries. And we had to manage to deplete all inventory of our current potato, all inventory of our current French fry, all inventory of our current salt, all inventory of our current oil, and resupply our entire system with the new oil, the new salt, the new French fry, the new potato. Um, and we all had to orchestrate this to happen in a one-week period. So uh, what some of our suppliers said was we, we basically landed an elephant on a dime because uh, in a one-week period, we transitioned the entire system out of the old French fry, out of the old oil, out of the old salt, and everyone was supplied with the new French fry, the new oil, and the new salt, and we didn't have any obsolescence at the end, which was just an unbelievable task from not only our suppliers and our distributors uh, and our farmers, but also everyone at the Wendy's team. So how many units does Wendy's have domestic? Uh, about 52, 5,300. So, and, and like just to hear, it's amazing. I don't think if, you, if you've been in the smaller systems or if you're just at the restaurant level and you've never worked at corporate, you don't know what it really takes to get any kind of thing done. You know what I mean? Like, why don't we have more LTOs or why don't we do more specials or whatever? Well, like you said, it took a year to figure out, like it took a year of planning to just change the fries, which I think people don't realize because we live in such a world of abundance that we people don't realize that like, this is like, all, like this isn't infinite. Like potatoes aren't, uh, 
potatoes aren't just magic. They don't just magically appear. Like somebody's got to physically go out and grow these potatoes and get them to the market. I mean, that's just insanity to think that you guys had 46,000 trucks at any given day moving some part of your French fries around the country. And 5,800 restaurants is a ton. It's definitely top 10 restaurant chains. But McDonald's has got 14,000, right? So, I mean, like there are chains that even have more units than that. And so when they do any kind of special, you got to think, wow, you know? What's going into this? Well, the exact same thing happens with uh, the salads every year. I mean, every year, Wendy's wants to be on trend with a new salad. And so one of the years that I was there, they introduced the berry almond salad, which had blueberries, it had strawberries, and it had a dressing made with real acai syrup. You know, we had to plan two years in advance for that because the acai berries are harvested in Brazil by hand. Um, so the amount of acai berries that we needed just to make the syrup that goes in the dressing was way above what the normal annual production of acai is. So we had to have people go down to Brazil, meet these rural farmers, and see how we could get more acai berries picked. Um, so that was a monumental task. And then when we did the Baja salad, uh, we wanted fresh cilantro in there. And there was not enough cilantro grown in the country um, to satisfy our needs. So we had to actually, you know, go out there and find acreage for farms to plant more cilantro. That is just nuts. Yeah. Cool. It's crazy, man. That, it's so cool and it's so interesting, but it's like just crazy to think. And it just puts food into a different perspective, right? When you don't, you don't realize the scale of these chains. It's nuts. Like I've heard that rumor. I mean, you may have heard it too. That like if uh, if McDonald's ran the McRib like on their regular menu, that they that there's not enough like pigs in the country to deal with it. And you go, no, no way, that can't be true. But then you go, no, really, they could stick it. There, no bacon, no nothing else. It all go to McRibs. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a crazy machine, and somehow it still works, even though you know there really still aren't very sophisticated processes out there uh, for sure um and so then tell us i guess what so you you already explained what you do today okay so you've answered question number one to my satisfaction we will now move to question number two <laughs> what is the project initiative uh, what is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now i'm working with a major uh, kettle cooked manufacturer in the food service industry one of the largest and um, in the past, they would be a very uh, responsive company in that they would have their customers come to them and say, uh, you know, we want this new soup or we want this new side dish. Uh, develop some samples for us, for us to try. Um, they would develop, you know, 10, 20, 50 samples, send it out, and then they would wait for feedback, um, which is a model that a lot of manufacturing companies follow um, because they just don't have the time and resources to plan ahead because they have their customers coming to them every single day asking for new samples and asking for new things. Um, but it's also not a very successful model because what you do is you spend the majority of your R&D time, the majority of your innovation time just fulfilling customers' requests for samples. And oftentimes the customers that are requesting the samples you know, they're just requesting samples. They didn't really put a lot of thought into uh, what product they're requesting. They didn't put a lot of consumer research into, really, is this the 
flavor profile I need for my restaurant. They didn't put a lot of thought into, is this really the target and, and occasion that I want to grow? Uh, so it's a lot of wheels turning, um, but not a lot really getting done. So what I'm doing for them is I'm putting together an entirely new innovation process. And this innovation process starts with the consumer need, uh, where as in the past, it always started with the product. You know, either a chef or a marketing person had an idea for a product and uh, they would give it to a supplier and the supplier would make it and then they would see what happens. Well, now with this new innovation process that we're developing, uh, we start with the consumer need. So we figure out really today what are consumers looking for as far as macro trends. And then from those macro trends, we narrow it down to uh, targets. What or Depending on the customer, what target are they really trying to reach? Do they currently serve a ton of baby boomers and they're trying to get more millennials in the door? Uh, are they currently Generation Z focused and they, uh, they want to have a more solid uh, baby boomer base? You know, really, what target are they really going after? So then we'll put that on the list. And then we'll look at lifestyle targets and value targets. You know, what type of people are they going after? Are they going after, um, you know, high energy, high, highly driven, uh, highly successful people? Are they going after more uh, down-to-earth, uh, soccer mom type people? What's that real lifestyle target? And then we'll put that on the box. And then we'll look at occasions. And we'll see, okay, well, right now you have a very robust dinner. Uh, but you don't have very many lunch or snacking transactions. So let's design a product that either fits in lunch or fits in snacking, that also fits this lifestyle target, that also fits this demographic target, that also is in line with this macro trend that we're seeing. And then after all that, we'll start developing a concept. And the concept will be around all the research that we've already done, and it will be, they'll have a positioning statement and I'll have a focus and I'll have a goal. And then once we have that concept, we'll put products against that concept. So for instance, maybe we'll have a concept that's called um, feeling good. And maybe within that concept, we're looking for baby boomers who are really active out there trying to find a quick lunch that doesn't weigh them down, doesn't make them feel like they indulge too much, but it still fulfills the need of tasting good and being fuel for their bodies to get them through the rest of the day, but it's still a helpful option and they can feel good about eating it. And so that's basically the concept, and then we would design products that fit that concept. So maybe it is, you know, a nutraceutical type sippable broth uh, where you can get you know, all of your daily vitamins and your high fiber, high iron needs in a very indulgent feeling, very healthy, very clean, sippable uh, chicken consomme. Um, so so that's, that's kind of how, how we would design uh, the product versus the past where they would sit and wait for a customer to contact them. And the customer would say, I want a new innovative mashed potato with ghost pepper chili in it. And so they would develop a mashed potato with ghost pepper chili in it. But who knows whether there's actually a, a market out there for ghost pepper mashed potatoes. Who knows whether there's actually a target out there for ghost pepper mashed potatoes. Who knows, who knows whether that actually fulfills their occasion need. Maybe they already have a dinner 
a robust dinner business and no one's going to eat ghost pepper mashed potatoes for lunch. So, so it, it's really designing and developing with a purpose. And so the idea is like all great marketing, right? And market research is that when you understand the the people and the occasion and what their need is, is that, and you get the product out there correctly, that all of a sudden the people go, this is exactly what I wanted. This is delicious. And then they, and you drive, so obviously I drive sales, right? But you, what you guys are trying to go for this sort of notion of, you know, like whenever I'm like a big Mac guy. So whenever I get like, a, you know, a new Apple product, I'm just like, ah, this is nice, right? Like this is exactly what I needed. Like they really thought this through. You want people to have that feeling, even if they don't articulate it, but that they go, man, Panera, they just get me. They, I love Panera because they just get what I need for lunch. That's what you're really going for. Is that a correct statement? Yes. And to take it a step further, we're looking at the customer's needs, not the consumer, but the actual restaurant chain's needs. Yeah. Uh, we're looking at where their sales mix currently is and where they want their sales mix to be and where they need to bring in more customers to be more profitable and what occasion that is. Nice. That's really cool. Um, well, you've satisfied question number two as well. You're killing it, man. You're, you're, you're two for two. <laughs> um, question numero three, what is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Um, well, you know, as a uh, small business owner, is you know some days you can have more work than you can handle and things can be great and then all of a sudden other days you know there may not be a lot going on and there's other days where there may not be a lot going on it you know it's 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 terrifying because you don't know when the next business is coming and especially when you have employees to look after um and employees counting on their income from you you know, it, it's a constant, constant worry in the back of your head that, you know, times may be great right now, uh, but what happens two years from now if, you know, business dries up? Well, and I'll tag on because I know you're doing consulting and in my last company we were doing consulting. And I mean, the, just like it's so much work just to close these deals and sell these deals. And then once you have a deal going, you're like, it's hard to find the time to effectively market and sell, especially cause you're like, you know, you don't have like a professional sales guy out there that's just beating down the bushes every day. And so all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's always like feast or famine in consulting, right? When you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it is nuts. Um, yeah, I could totally see that. And, and I know for the restaurant guys out there listening, I mean, it's so tough. And, and one thing that I always worry about with the restaurant guys is that they don't have time, especially the single unit guys. The corporate's got more resources to deal with. It's like a chain's got more resources. But for the single unit guys, you know, like for, like they just don't have time to really do the kind of forecasting that they really should be doing. You know, and technology's sort of catching up slowly. Like I, we know some guys that have a really great, uh, labor management system, like scheduling system, but it's looking at cover counts and what you did out of your register. And it's taking that into like a theoretical model, but you know, like all of those things, you've got to use it all the time and you got to get it set up correctly. Uh, but I mean, cause you overstaff 
and then you got a bunch of people sitting on your payroll and then you're cutting them and they don't make any money. You know, it's just the whole, it's just a bad thing. And it's just, it's really, really tough when you've got a big restaurant and a lot of team members on there and, and, you know, just to manage those costs effectively. Yeah. Well, and then Seattle, like, so we, I was at NRA this year, just as a side note, not, I won't derail us too much, but we were at, we were smoking a cigar at the Biggs Mansion, and that's where uh, Seinfeld and, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Steve Harvey had their cigar and comedians in cars, but we were sitting there smoking a cigar. That's why we went there, because it looked really cool. And, uh, and some guys from the NRA show were there, and one guy was a Subway franchisee who lived in Seattle proper. And what Seattle proper is doing to franchise restaurants is insanity. But the new thing that they're doing, I don't know if you've even heard of this yet. You may have is they, uh, they're they're putting all these like special like labor restrictions on where like the minimum shift you can have is four hours. And then if you, let's say you change the shift on somebody as a manager, you change the shift, they're going to bill you a one hour fine that goes to the employee. But if the employee no calls, no shows or, or can't make it, then you know, there's no fine there and you have yeah. to pay them for four hours. So if you staff up, but then, you know, whatever, lunch is really slow. You still got to pay these guys this exorbitant minimum wage, by the way, to stay on for four hours. So now you're like looking at what do I have them clean, right? Because I got to pay this guy for four hours. I'm not sending him home. He's in a, you know. You're good. I mean, I guess the restaurants will be cleaner, but all of a sudden you're nailed. You know what I mean? Like you, you have, you have to assume that your entire staff is going to be on half the time. And then, so that'll make you want to staff lower, but then your service will go down because, and this is only for franchises too. This isn't for independent restaurants. Well, and the minimum wage issue in general, it's really tough on the restaurant industry because the restaurant industry more than almost any other industry. I mean, the service industry and the retail industry experience this as well a little bit. But for the most part, it's built by these, you know, high school kids who, yeah. for the most part, really don't care about their job. They're just looking for some cash, number one. And number two, most of those jobs are not that complex. Like when I was a dishwasher, I would have been flabbergasted if someone was actually willing to pay me $15 an hour to wash dishes. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, especially during that time when you're young, you're growing up, uh, this isn't necessarily going to be your career going forward. So you don't necessarily really care about how the business runs and, you know, you're, you're just there to get a paycheck and for the government to basically say, you have to give this high school kid washing dishes, $15 an hour, you know, it, it just cut the legs right, right out from under you. Well, and the other thing is too, is like I, my first job was at 14 too. I worked at a sub shop in the mall in Columbia, Maryland, making cheesesteaks and sandwiches. I had zero work experience prior to that point. And, and you had no experience washing dishes, but now if I'm a restaurant guy and I got to pay $15 an hour, I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to hire a high school kid. I'm going to go find a professional cook somewhere to come do this because I might as well get my money's worth. Like, why would I pay an unskilled person and train them to do something for 15 bucks an hour that, you know, there's somebody out there who's got some skill, you know, I mean, it, it's, yeah, you're right. So what's going to happen is, is high school kids 
and kids with work permits and kids whose moms have to drop them off to go to work aren't going to get these jobs. They're not going to get any jobs because no one's going to hire them. Why would I hire you to do this? You, you're just going to screw it up, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a downward spiral and I'm scared. I'm scared about where it's going to land. Yeah. Well, you know, it's going to land, it's going to land on more and more automation in the restaurants. And then, and once they, once you get a machine, you spend the 35, like if at the NRA show, they have robots. And last year, the robot was twice as big as it was this year. That was flipping fries. So it's just going to be, you know, it's going to be a couple of well, people. Small mom that, and pops can't yeah. afford those robots. So we're going to see all these, you know, small mom and pops who, yeah, you know, keep sure. up with the culinary traditions of America and other countries and, you know, serve you know, a, a different type of food experience than what you'll get at a typical chain, yep. uh, they're all going to be going away because they just can't afford to keep their doors open. So yeah. I, I is losing some of our culinary food tradition. It's going to, yeah, it's all going to be chains. And yeah, you're right, because no one's going to be able to afford to do it. And uh, yeah. That's a whole other topic, I guess. Uh, yeah. That's a bummer, though. Because because uh, because everybody who comes on this podcast and we've interviewed a lot of people, everybody started like us. Everybody started when they were young doing like just, you know, there's nobody in the restaurant industry so far that we've interviewed um, that hasn't started at like in their teens. They were just drawn to it and they had no experience and somebody gave them a shot. Right. And that's going to go away. And then, then where are they going to get the people to do all this stuff? You know what I mean? They're not, there's not going to be the skills to do it. And it's just going to, ah, okay. Yeah, it's a bummer. Well, the uh, problem is it's not black and white. It's gray, and we can't make laws that are black and white. I mean, do I feel bad for that single mother who's been working at McDonald's for 10 years, and uh, she's stuck at a $10.75 pay wage? Yes, of course I feel bad for her. That employer, uh, whoever owns that restaurant, has a duty to – you know, compensate her for not only her experience, but her dedication to his company because she's been there for so long and yeah. she deserves to get paid more. But when you make a broad law like this, then you're benefiting those, all those other people who are just starting, have no experience and really don't deserve that level of a wage. Uh, absolutely. What is the one? Okay. So I'm going to move on to question number four is we've kind of gotten down sad now uh what is the one thing you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't um well just working um in all these very very large companies i've been shocked at um the lack of real sophistication in how such huge companies at such scope can run um without any type of sophistication backing their processes I mean, it's still very, very 1960s, 1970s uh, type processes where, you know, you'll do your checklists on pen and paper and, you know, you'll just create products like a dartboard and just hope that something sticks. You don't actually like have any time to think ahead and to plan and to um, develop with a purpose and to actually add some sophistication to your business processes and your business goals. Um, so I've just been shocked that the food service industry has been so slow in adopting um, just more sophisticated processes. 
I don't know how it all works. It does, but it could be so much more efficient and it could be so much more targeted if they just added a little bit more sophistication. I know that right now they think that, well, they're always, they're always backpedaling or they're always, you know, two steps behind and they're putting all their resources into staying ahead and staying in front. And that doesn't give them a lot of time and a lot of resources to add the sophistication and add this planning. Uh, but what I would say to them is, you know, if you took the time and the resources to add the sophistication, add the planning, then you wouldn't always be two steps behind and you wouldn't always be, you know, running your wheels on all these mundane tasks and all these things that really don't affect your business as much as planning ahead would. Well, and I think, Kevin, because I've worked in one large chain as well, uh, like a corporate like you did, um, and it it's just crazy because the whole me- I think because we are everybody starts off right like so everybody starts off as a dishwasher or a cook or something and they work their way up through the industry. There's very few people that just come out of college and end up you know managing a huge restaurant company. Then like there's never been an appreciation for technology or process at the restaurant level. Like, it, you know, it's mandated, the systems are mandated by corporate, but even in the franchise model, they're mandated like for anything that like affects the guest experience, but how you actually run your business is kind of still left up to you. As long as, you know, the food's coming out correctly and the restaurant looks the way it's supposed to look and the menu's the same. But so there's like, because we, people are growing up in the industry and they're, and the industry's woefully behind technology wise. And in a lot of ways, woefully, woefully behind process and system wide, those guys are the guys that are in the leadership roles, right? And so I think generationally, we have to get more technology in at the restaurant level. And I think these new generations of, of restaurants are getting it. And, and so then it maybe it'll bleed up into corporate leadership at some point. But I mean, it's such a, I didn't need to do that when I was running my restaurant in the 70s. You know what I mean? Well, guess what? You need to do it now because there's 10,000 more restaurants in that strip center than there were in 1970 when you were the only game in town, you know? I'm with you. So, yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, I'll also just tag onto that too. If you're going to be in a franchise system or you're looking to buy a franchise restaurant and your franchisor doesn't own their own stores, that is, should be a red flag to you because a lot of times when the franchisor doesn't own, a lot of times at corporate, the people at corporate very quickly forget what it's like to actually work in the restaurants. They just, it, it like zips out of their brain like they never did it before and they make decisions at corporate. And if they don't have their own restaurants to test them in, then you are looking at a thing where, you know, it's half thought through idea that you push onto the system, then the system revolts because they're like, what the heck are you making us do here? I'm sure you saw that at Wendy's. Well, and it's, it's really uh, the mindset around key stakeholders. So if your franchisor owns their own restaurants, then they have an invested interest in making sure that those restaurants make money. If the franchisor does not own their own restaurants, then they have an invest or vested interest in making sure that their shareholders earn money, not necessarily the store. Uh, so they're going to make sure that they still get their marketing dollars, that they still get their franchisee fees, that they still manage to get that corporate level to make money, um, but they aren't necessarily as concerned 
at each store's profitability as they would be if they own their own restaurants. And you just summed up Quiznos perfectly. (laughs) So, okay. Question numero five. Recount the funniest or worst thing that's happened to you in your career. Uh, The worst thing, the funniest thing. Just like a funny story, if you got one. Um, uh, When I used to wait tables um, at a popular burger chain, um, we had a company policy that at the end of the night, you had to go around to each table and wipe off the opening of the ketchup bottle uh, so that it always looked clean. And then any ketchup bottle that was less than half full, we would have to pour that ketchup into another bottle that was less than half full so that it would look you know, like it was, it was a full ketchup bottle. The problem was, you know, kids were a very heavy, heavy user of this restaurant, and we would find crayons in the ketchup bottles. We'd find snacks. We would find <laughs> gum. We would find, you know, salt because kids love to play with those salt shakers and just pour it everywhere. Uh, so that was number one. Number two, you know, a lot of these servers didn't necessarily – care or know about, uh, you know, food safety or HACCP, and they would use the dirtiest dish rags you've ever seen to wipe these ketchup bottles. And so to this day, I still will not eat ketchup at a restaurant unless it is in a ramekin. I will not eat ketchup out of a ketchup bottle after some of the things that Uh, You're speaking the truth on that one, dude. Oh my goodness. That I, I my hand like my hands were like clenched in little balls while you were saying that because I was like, ah, that's so gross. <laughs> you probably see your kids do stuff to those ketchup bottles. Oh my god, I encourage it actually. I'm just like, get in there, really mess it up for these people. They, they, <laughs> that'd be horrible. Oh man. The only time my hands cringe is when I see deli slicers because I cut my thumb on a deli slicer one time cleaning it and that story like i literally put my thumbs in my palms and squeeze down because i'm like i can't handle this this is too gross but it's so true one has cut their thumb on a deli slicer at some point if you've ever worked in a restaurant with a deli slicer oh i, know I have yeah I no, I, anyone who- I i watch people cutting meat I can't, I can't watch them cut meat like at the grocery store i have to like just order and be like hey can i go get something else we're going i'll be back because I can't handle watching him do it. Because I'm just like, uh, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on and answering the five questions interview here on the Order Up podcast. Can you do us a favor and tell us, like, tell the people where they can get your services and, um, you know, where they can reach you if they want to contact you? Yeah. So again, uh, it's Denver Food Group, and we we have, you know people that work with us that are experts in product development. We have people that work for us that are experts in every aspect of market research. We have uh, people who are experts in equipment and kitchen design. Um, So we really run the full gamut as far as food service, restaurant type support. Uh, So anything you need, uh, feel free to give us a call. Uh, You can find all of our contact information online on our website at www dot denver food group dot com 
Awesome. And I, I know from uh, hanging out with John and, and some of the guys that he works with, he's got a super deep bench. So, you know, if don't, if you have any kind of issue that you guys are trying to solve and whether you're a big chain or whether you're an independent, because I know that you work with a lot of independents too, um, and a lot of guys that are trying to start their concept. So their goal is to have one or two restaurants, figure it out and then grow. I know you work with like, you know, the big chains and the small independents as well. So if you guys are out there and you have any questions for uh, John and his team, uh, please reach out to him because I know they'll take care of you. And uh, like I said, if he doesn't have the answer at the top of his head, he's got a super deep bench of connections. He can get you in touch with the right people to sort of solve your issues. So, hey, man, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon, man. We'll let the uh, talking dead roasting begin. Yeah, that's the whole next hour where I pick apart everything you said and be like, that guy's nuts. I wouldn't do any of that. (laughs) Cool. Take care, man. Bye.